Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, my name is David Obelt. I'm the Chief Content Officer for Malcontent News. Linnea is taking a well-deserved day off. We're going to do something a little different here on Sunday. I'm going to do a weekly roundup of the events that have happened in Ukraine. We're going to talk about Russian tactics and how Ukraine can respond. Herson is cut off, so what's next? I'm going to talk about the Imperial Legion of Russia and its connections to the Wagner Group in the United States. And finally, we're going to talk about how Russia is starting to move to a war economy. Let's start with our week in review. We're going to start in Kharkiv. We'll work our way across the line of conflict and finish up in Kherson. So starting in Kharkiv, not a lot has happened there in the last week. We don't think a lot is going to happen there between now and the start of mud season and eventually winter when the snow starts to fall. We did do some adjustments on our map. That was based upon better intelligence coming in and getting a clearer understanding on where some Ukrainian positions are and where some Russian positions are. But this didn't represent any offensive changes. Ukraine is rotating out and handing off defense of that region to Territorial Guard. Russia's been testing the abilities of those units, and so far the units are performing well. If we head further south, we'll go ahead and talk about what's going on around Izum, and there is a lot that is happening there. We've been very reluctant to use the word counteroffensive to describe what is happening. This is more of a case of Russian defensive lines southwest, south, and southeast of the city of Izum starting to crumble. They have removed, when I say they, Russian Ministry of Defense, has moved a lot of troops out of this region. It started in early June when they started to draw down forces and move them into the offensive that was happening in Luhansk. They also pulled four battalion tactical groups out of there in June because they were combat ineffective. They had essentially been destroyed, located in the forests that are west of Azum. Russian soldiers call that part of Ukraine Sherwood Forest, as in the legend of Robin Hood. And it's not meant to be complimentary. Uh, This is not a good place for Russian soldiers. There is a lot of Ukrainian special operation forces that have been operating in there for months. There's a lot of harassments of troops. And Ukraine owns the night in this region. So units that have been assigned there have suffered attrition, and they don't have a lot of good way to respond. What's starting to happen now is Ukraine is gaining fire control in this area. They are able to shell Russian positions with artillery 
and not have as strong a response from counter battery as they would have had 60 days ago. The other thing that's happening is they've gotten much better with accuracy and how to use the NATO-provided M777 artillery that they're using in this area. And so Ukraine has advanced to 15, 14 kilometers away from Izum, and they are continuing to inch their way further and further north. But again, we're not ready to call this a counteroffensive. This is more target of opportunity because Russian forces just don't have a lot of troop strength there. Next, I'm going to move to northeast Donetsk, and we consider this a triangle, which is from Bilohorivka to Slavyansk to the other Bilohorivka, which is located in Donetsk. There's been an increase in fighting and Russian activity in this area in the last week. We've seen some troop movements, but not anything significant. This really feels to us like these are spoiling attacks. Russia is not making the progress that they want in Solidar and Bakhmut. In our assessment, the renewed attacks in this area by Russian forces are spoiling attacks. They're trying to convince Ukrainian military leaders they have to add more military assets into this area to counter these ongoing skirmishes, and that's really what these are that are happening in this region. We don't think that this is representative of a looming larger offensive. If this continues, Ukraine is going to have to start moving some resources in here, if anything, because of attritional losses. Go further south now to Bakhmut and Solodar. What's happening down there is the offensive has stalled out. In the case of Solidar, that offensive was being led by the private military company Wagner Group. Wagner Group is suffering over 50% casualties in that area. This is also the first place that the penal units, these convict units that Wagner had hired, were put into combat for the first time, and it didn't end well. Uh, casualty rates were reported to be over 90% for that particular unit, and the Wagner mercenaries refused to work with them anymore. What's happening? Wagner is pulling out. Russian VDV, airborne forces, are moving in. That's why we've seen this operational pause for the last two to three days, and that we've seen some reconnaissance and reconnaissance in force in the last 24 hours. That's evaluating the situation and what to do next. The pause definitely helps Ukraine, gives them an opportunity to rotate some troops, strengthen defenses, and do some reconnaissance on their part. Bakhmut's a very similar situation. That offensive has stalled out. Russian forces are on the edge of Bakhmut. Urban warfare, house-to-house fighting is not their strong suit, and they don't have the light infantry forces to move into Bakhmut and do this house-to-house urban warfare. And armored vehicles and urban warfare is a very bad combination. Heading further south to west of Donetsk, where Russian forces are also struggling. And we're not surprised by this at all. Back in May, the Russian Ministry of Defense and Donetsk People's Republic military leaders of the 1st Army Corps said they would not do a direct assault on Avdivka because it wouldn't be successful, that the defenses are too strong, there's too many Ukrainian troops in there, and 
urban fighting would be as challenging as Mariupol within Avdivka. So they were working on this strategy of encirclement. And what we've seen happen at the start of August is this direct assault on Kamyanka, Avdivka, Piski, and Marenka. And none of these offensives are going well. The only one where they're seeing some success is Piski. In 2014, Piski was a village of just 2,000 people. They're launching 6,000 artillery shells a day, trying to break Ukrainian defenses. Ukraine still holds about 25 to 35 percent of Piski in the northeastern corner. I know a lot of people say northwest, but they're on the other side of the pond. So technically, they're in the what you would call the northeastern corner of Piski. And they're having an extremely hard time, Russian forces, in finally pushing them out. And this is despite using this World War II General Zhukov doctrine of bomb an area flat, send in light infantry. Did light infantry get shot at? Yes. Well, okay, we lost a couple hundred people. Let's repeat tomorrow. Bomb the area flat. We'll send in some light infantry and see if they get shot at. That's literally what they're doing there in Pisky. And they're sending their light infantry forward, and they're still getting shot at. We believe that Pisky will be captured. The situation there is untenable. We don't think that Russia has enough light infantry troops to capitalize on those gains. If I head further south along the front, southern Ukraine, this is a frozen front, and this has been a frozen front for a long time. There is mutual artillery shelling, there's mutual airstrikes, there are skirmishes that are happening, and there are some places here where Ukrainian defenses and Russian defenses are so close together, they're yelling taunts at each other from the trenches. This is very much World War I-style trench warfare. You can't leave the trenches during the day. You can't stay in one place for very long because drones will spot you if you are not moving around. It's very hard to get a decent night's sleep because there are artillery barrages that are happening at all hours. This is happening for both Ukrainian and Russian forces. Manning the trenches on the Russian side, you have Chechen National Guard and separatists from the Donetsk People's Republic and a little bit from the Luhansk People's Republic. They're not getting rotated out. A lot of those troops have been there since February, and morale is very low. They're ill-equipped. They're even lesser equipped than the Ukrainians on the other side, who also don't have enough equipment. The other problem that they have is Russia did move a lot of reserve equipment, for example, T-62 tanks, into this area. They pulled them out a couple of weeks ago because there's no trained personnel left to operate this new equipment that is coming in. So we're in this stalemate of positional World War I-style trench warfare, and the situation there will get a lot worse when mud season begins in another two to six weeks. And that finally leads us to Kherson, which we'll talk about in more in depth later in the podcast. The big news is the four main bridges that connect Western Kherson to Eastern Kherson have all been disabled at this point. The only way that Russian troops can be supplied is through ferry and helicopter. Now, for things like rations and small arms ammunition, this is tenable. But if you think about things like fuel, artillery shells, anti-aircraft rockets, 
there is no way to properly supply the troops that are now on the wrong side of the river. Over the last three weeks, in the little town of Piski, west of Donetsk, we've seen a case study in Russian military doctrine and how they operate and advance into new territory. The first thing that they attempted was a frontal assault, and it failed. And it really shouldn't be to anybody's surprise that it failed. You have conscripts that have been poorly trained advancing into defensive positions that have been established for eight years, manned by very experienced Ukrainian troops. So Russia then tried to flank those positions. They tried to go to the south and go around, and that didn't work very well either. One of the things that we've learned is Ukrainian positions were further south than I think the Russians thought, certainly further south than what we thought from Pisky, and they were met by artillery fire because that area is very open. It is cropland in that region and impossible to move in a stealthy way. So unable to do a frontal assault, unable to flank Ukrainian positions, they went back to 1941 and started dropping 6,000 artillery shells a day on this village that once upon a time was home for only 2,000 people, as we had talked about. We've seen this strategy play out in other places in Ukraine, particularly in Luhansk. The Russian Ministry of Defense declared back on March 25th that they were specifically working on capturing the city of Severodonetsk. And it took almost three months to achieve that goal. And ultimately, it was achieved by firing up to 20,000 artillery shells a day into that area, outfiring Ukrainian resources by a ratio of 10 to 1. They bombed the area flat. Papasna is going to be abandoned. The Luhansk People's Republic said the city is irreparable. Rubizhne, which was a city of 55,000 people, has no one living in it because the city has been completely destroyed. This doctrine that they apply is bomb an area flat to the point that Ukrainian defenders have nothing left to defend. There is no viable reason to continue to stay in that area. And so they withdraw. Russian forces advance into the rubble. It's a propaganda victory, but these aren't the actions of a liberator. These are the actions of a military that is either conducting genocide or is desperate for military gains to be used as political wins. You can take your pick on which lens you want to look through there. How does Ukraine counteract this? In the current environment, Ukraine can't. And that's the harsh reality. Ukraine is quickly adopting NATO weapons and NATO doctrine. They're doing it much faster than I think anybody expected they were capable of doing. But they still have a deficit of four to one 
in artillery firepower. And although they have gotten much better because the accuracy and the range of the NATO artillery systems, the M777 towed artillery piece and the self-propelled guns that they've gotten from multiple nations are force multipliers. One M777 artillery piece might be equal to two or three Russian D30s because they have longer range and they have better accuracy. Less shells are hitting more targets. You're getting more warheads on foreheads. That's what we mean by a force multiplier. But they still don't have enough. And we can see that because Russian troops are still making very slow gains in the areas that they focus. What Ukraine desperately needs is more artillery pieces. They don't need parity. They don't need the same number of artillery pieces and self-propelled guns that Russia has. They probably need to double the number that they have. The other thing that Ukraine has to do, continue to learn NATO tactics, particularly around counter-battery. So what counter-battery is, I have artillery firing at me. I need to seek and destroy that artillery with my artillery. Russia is, they're not great at it, but they're better than Ukraine is at it. And Ukraine just does not have enough artillery pieces to do counter-battery and provide cover fire. They are faced with the choice of either or. So in a place like Pisky, what's happening is Ukraine is focusing on counter-battery, and they're not providing any support to the Ukrainian troops who are begging for artillery support. There's just nothing there to give it to them. What Ukraine really needs is, is more artillery pieces, more trained Ukrainian soldiers and how to use those artillery pieces and to adopt better tactics for counter-battery. And unfortunately, all of that is going to take time. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on Patreon.com at Malcontent News. We learned this morning that the last bridge across the Dnieper River to Kherson has been disabled. It's still possible to get light vehicles. You can drive a car across the bridge. You're not driving tanks. You're not driving self-propelled artillery pieces. You're not going to be driving heavy cargo trucks filled with ammunition shells. The only way that you can get these materials now to the western part of Kherson is by several ferry boats. They're essentially just modified pontoon bridges turned into ferry boats and by helicopter. What's next now that you have 25,000 Russian troops where their ground lines of communication, their supply lines are severed. Some people will say, well, it's okay. They could still handle this with ferries. They could still handle this with helicopters. Let's remember, 25,000 troops need 75,000 rations a day. They also need potable water, drinking water. When you do the math on the weight and the volume, the sheer amount of space that takes up, and then you have to do that 365 days a year, every day, nonstop with no disruption. If any of those ferries get sunk 
doing this. Or once the supplies get to the other side, they are destroyed as they're moving to their distribution points, then you're at zero. It never happened. We're not even considering things like diesel fuel or gasoline, which takes up even more volume and more weight and that they need at very large volumes. There is no going to the Ukrainian gas station in this area. In Western Kherson, this is very much like in the United States, like central Kansas or western Nebraska. This is rolling hills, flat wheat fields. Villages are distributed 10, 15 kilometers apart. They're very small. They have very limited resources. There's not a lot of homes to loot. There's not a lot of grocery stores to loot. You're not going to find the things that you need, not just to wage war, but over time to just survive. So what are we going to watch for? Well, one of the things that we would be watching for is looting. And there are signs today that looting is already starting in Kherson. There were mass arrests that started towards the end of the week. Russian special forces were moving through the city of Kherson uh, at night, pulling people out of their homes and doing searches. There are reports today that over a thousand garages in people's homes have been gone through over the weekend, but they're just going through and taking stuff. They're really not detaining anybody. They're just breaking in, and the accusation is they're looting materials. Why would they be looting? There are two possibilities if we apply Occam's razor, because we don't have the orders. We don't know what their true direction for doing this is. The most logical answers are, we're running out of stuff. We have to get stuff, because it's going to be even harder to get stuff in another few weeks. Or they're starting to get orders that some of these units are going to be withdrawing across to the eastern side of the river, and it's time to cash in. I know that's a very cynical view, but this is the behavior that we have seen from Russian troops for six months. We've seen nothing to indicate that these patterns or behaviors are going to change. The next thing we would be looking for is if we start seeing abandoned vehicles because they have run out of fuel or they've run out of parts or a tire has gone bad. Do we start seeing what was happening in March, in April, during the failed offensive towards Kyiv? That's the second thing we're going to be looking for. The third thing we're going to be looking for is a reduction in fighting, a reduction in mobility. Are we starting to see the number of artillery shells trailing off? Do we start to see the number of artillery strikes going down? And is it less indiscriminate? Are they really trying to target something instead of this doctrine of, we'll just saturate an area, destroy everything, and call it good? If these ground lines of communication are cut off for weeks, the next sign that we would start to look for, more desperate signs of looting, Russian soldiers coming into people's homes, throwing them out of their homes, possibly starting to commit atrocities because they're just looking for food or they're looking for warm weather gear. You have 25,000 Russian soldiers on the west side of the Dnipro. They are all equipped with summer gear. They are not equipped for the fall or winter. And when mud season starts, and that's at another two to six weeks, depending on when the rains start to really come in. Those Russian troops that are currently in trenches are going to be up to their knees in 
mud that has been described by a World War II reporter as the consistency of maple syrup. These trenches will not be tenable defenses anymore. And if they don't have the proper gear to live and fight in these conditions, you're going to start to see, even before the snow comes, cold weather injuries. You're going to start to see troops with hypothermia. You're going to start to see troops with trench foot and infections. And this is going to cripple morale. If things start to get really bad from a supply standpoint, and we're starting to get into the late fall and the early winter, the final sign is you would start to see Russian soldiers surrendering. They're not going to desert. And even if they want to desert, it's going to be close to impossible. If the only way across the river is through these ferries, a deserter is going to have a very challenging time getting onto one of these ferries and not being detected. The only option they have left then is to surrender. It's going to be impossible to walk off because walking off requires maybe moving 10 kilometers across an open wheat field where Russian drones and Ukrainian drones are going to see you moving out in the open. This is all speculation. Russians could come up with supply solutions. And the other thing that we don't know is how much supply is already sitting on the west side of the river. Can they sustain for days, weeks, or months? One thing is, as time goes by, we're going to learn. In early June, a picture appeared in pro-Russian groups of two soldiers or mercenaries with the Imperial Legion of Russia standing in a Zoom outside of the bombed-out remains of the city hospital. And both of them were wearing Nazi insignia. What happened after that picture came out, and now that I've told you about this, you won't be able to unsee it. Occasionally, you'll see pictures of people with private military company Wagner Group, and some of the patches in the photos that are shared have been blurred out. It's because those fighters are not with Wagner Group. They are with the Imperial Legion of Russia, which is a declared terrorist organization. It's estimated there are up to 4,000 members of the Imperial Legion that are fighting in Ukraine today. The Imperial Legion is the military arm of the Russian imperialist movement. The Russian imperialist movement was hatched in 2002, became a political party within Russia of 2012. They actually aren't aligned very closely with the Putin regime. Their vision is of white nationalism, of Russian superiority, of a pure race, and Returning to czarist rules, to reestablish the rulers of Russia from people who can connect their lineage and heritage back to the original czars, following the methodology and the beliefs of the Russian Orthodox Church. The Kremlin is using the Russian imperialist movement because their terrorist organization is very helpful fighting in Ukraine, as well as in several African countries. And the Russian imperialist movement is using the Kremlin because they're accelerationists. This is a belief that 
This will help speed up their ultimate goal. We help take Ukraine, which this is part of our vision because we want to have this expansionism, return back to the czarist and Soviet glory, and then we'll deal with Putin. And I'm sure in the Kremlin, well, they'll help us get Ukraine, and then we could deal with them afterwards. The Russian imperialist movement formed the Imperial Legion in 2007 as a paramilitary club. In the United States, we would call these militias. Now, in all 50 states, armed militias are technically illegal in the United States. They aren't in Russia, and they are connected with a organization out of the Kremlin, which is the Voluntary Society for Cooperation with the Army, Aviation, and Navy. That organization was created in the 1950s during the Soviet era to promote a healthy lifestyle and teach the history of Russian military glory. And the reality is they're just training armed militias. The day after Russian forces occupied Ukrainian Crimea, Members of the Russian imperialist movement flew to Ukraine, and they met with members of the forming Donetsk People's Republic, who had Nazi and white nationalist ideology to align and work together. And there was an agreement that was made that the Imperial Legion would start to train and provide fighters for the Donetsk People's Republic. This continued until 2016. At that point, there started to be a split in ideology. In 2015, the Russian government sponsored the International Conservative Forum of Russia in St. Petersburg. One of the organizers of that conference was the Russian imperialist movement, and it attracted white nationalists and neo-Nazis from around the world, including Germany, Italy, Greece, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and the United States. One of the attendees of that meeting went on to launch three terrorist attacks in Sweden as members of the Nordic resistance movement. Although the Russian imperialist movement and the Imperial Legion had a falling out with the Donetsk People's Republic, in the dark corners of the internet, their reputation among white nationalists was growing because they were training fighters who were fighting a war in Ukraine. More people started to flock to their training programs in St. Petersburg and in Moscow. The Kremlin was asked about this activity of foreigners coming in and being trained by the Imperial Legion, and the Kremlin's reaction was, we're not going to block this. These organizations exist to train people that support Russia in military tactics. Why would we prevent people wanting to come to us to learn how to fight for Russia? In April of 2020, Mike Pompeo, who was the Secretary of State at the time for the Trump administration, declared the Russian imperialist movement in the Imperial Legion a terrorist organization. This was considered unprecedented because it was the first time the United States had declared any white nationalist organization as a terrorist organization. The United States government made this move because they had hard evidence at this point that American citizens were going to Russia, receiving this training, and then coming back into anti-government organizations. At least two members of the neo-Nazi organization Adam Waffen have been arrested 
and are currently in prison who receive training from the Imperial Legion in Russia. There is no evidence that anybody directly involved in the January 6th insurrection, people that went into the capital, had gone to Russia and received training, not anything that is in the public sphere. If the idea that there are up to 4,000 neo-Nazis in Ukraine fighting for the denazification of Ukraine comes across as ironic, you would certainly be correct in that view. The relationship that the Kremlin and PMC Wagner Group has with the Imperial Legion is a relationship of convenience, but it doesn't change the fact that there is a brigade size unit of neo-Nazis, as I make this podcast today, fighting for Russia in Ukraine. In June of this year, it started to become very apparent that Russia was having issues with losses of military hardware, particularly tanks. We started seeing T-62 tanks that were designed before I was born and haven't been built since 1973 being reintroduced into Ukraine. They were having a second problem. Armored vehicles that are lightly or moderately damaged are being fixed in the field. Heavily damaged vehicles are being sent back to Russia on trains to be repaired at companies. And the companies that were doing this work were having two issues. The first issue is a number of the damaged vehicles that were showing up, these severely damaged armored vehicles, were so badly destroyed, there was nothing to repair. The second problem they had was the Kremlin wasn't paying them anymore. Because they are still run as companies as we might think of them in the Western space, they have bills to pay themselves as well as paying their employees. And by the end of June, several companies were refusing to do repair work anymore for the Russian Federation until they got paid. So the state Duma, to solve this problem, put legislation forward that said the Russian government can nationalize production for the war effort sorry, special military operation. And on July 14, President Vladimir Putin put his signature on that legislation. They can go to any company in Russia and say, you are now building for defense. And that company cannot say no. It further empowers the Kremlin to nationalize companies, take over a company for defense production. The other thing that it has in there is that the employees of those companies can be made to work additional shifts, work overtime, work nights, work weekends, work holidays, and they have no recourse. They have no say in the matter. If the state says you're going to work, you're going to work. The state doesn't have to compensate those employees for their time. For right now, the Duma has said, we will pay you for the extra time. We're not going to make you work 24-7. Don't worry about it. It's opportunity for you to make more money. That's the way they're positioning it, but that's not the way the law is written. There are very clear signs at this point that Russia is moving to execute that law, to start to nationalize defense production and move the country to a war production economy. This is an admission that the special military operation that 
was only supposed to last days, now weeks, now months, is probably going to last years. An interesting thing has happened in the Russian economy. If we think of World War II, we think of the tractor factories putting out T-34 tanks at an industrial level that the German economy could not match. Russia doesn't really build a lot of things anymore. Most of their manufacturing is outsourced to other parts of the world. And because of sanctions, those manufacturing elements are no longer available to them. A modern tank in 2022 is not the same as a T-34 tank from World War II. It is much more complex and requires electronics and systems that there is no answer to solving the availability problem. The other challenge that Russia has is they can build all the tanks that they want. They could activate their entire reserve fleet tomorrow if that's what the Russian Federation wanted to do. There are no trained people to command, drive, and be the gunners for those tanks. The easiest way to solve this problem would be for the Kremlin to formally declare war against Ukraine, do a general mobilization, have a four to eight month operational pause to properly train crews, build up their tank forces, and then move in. And the Kremlin doesn't want to do any of that. They want the war over. They don't want to do a general mobilization because they believe this will be politically damaging. What the Kremlin is doing instead is a stealth mobilization relying on volunteer units. And they have asked all of the regions in Russia, 85, to form individual volunteer battalions. The staffing level for those battalions is 400 to 500 troops. A Russian battalion before the invasion of Ukraine should have about 1,200 troops. These barely qualify as battalions. The districts are putting forward volunteer units, some of them as few as 50 or 100 soldiers. This is a platoon or a company. These are not battalions. Individual Russian citizens don't want to go and fight in Ukraine. Despite a high level of popularity among the population for the special military operation in Ukraine, when the reality hits of, now, we want you to go and fight for Russia to protect what we believe is this existential threat, the citizens are, not me, but maybe you can get somebody else. I hope you enjoyed having me as your host today. I know that I enjoy doing this. Linnea will be back tomorrow with our daily war updates. Please stay safe, everyone. And remember, for Malcontent News, the truth matters. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.